As you're sitting down, once you pull out your Bible, turn to the book of Acts and tell the person on your right and left, I'm glad you're here today. So we have spent the last two weeks talking about the three sentences that mean the most to us here at Bayou City Fellowship. Sentence number one, we want to be a church with a radical focus on Jesus. Last week, sentence number two, we want to be a church that works for the good of our city and the world. And today, we want to talk about sentence number three, we want to be a church that starts new churches. Uh, So we live in Houston, Texas, and I don't know about you, but when people come from out of town, they say, uh, oh, Houston's so big and so complicated, all the freeways. And what I like to tell people, if you understand basic shapes, then you can figure out Houston, Texas, because it's just a few circles with some lines running through. So the first of those circles is uh, the 610 Loop. It's where all the cool people live in town. Then you've got I-10 running right through the middle of it, coast to coast, Florida to California. Then you've got another loop, the Sam Houston Tollway. And when we started our church five years ago, we put it right at the intersection of I-10 and the Sam Houston Tollway. Then you've got, of course, other lines running through. You've got 59 running northwest to southwest. You've got 45 coming down. Down to Galveston, of course, you've got 290, the Devil's Highway. (laughs) But as we've been told, he will be vanquished in 2017, (laughs) apparently. Then there's another loop, the Grand Parkway, running all the way around. And then we've heard, you've heard, we've told people, it may not be true, but I'm a preacher, so what are you going to do? That TxDOT is buying up land even to do another loop, although it won't be a full loop because down here in this bottom portion, it would run you into the water. And so we have this dot, and... The one thing that we know about Houston is that it is expanding, 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 expanding. I mean, we've hear consistently on the news and and read it grows by thousands of people, even every week. You know, there's people moving into your neighborhood, moving out of your neighborhood, moving into your neighborhood, moving out of your neighborhood. And it's the one thing that we have here in Houston land, so the city can just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the bigger it gets, the smaller our dot begins to look. And so a few years we ago, we decided instead of trying to make as big of dot as possible in one place and inviting the city to come to us, why, what if we just put dots all over the map and grew congregations of 1,000 to 2,000, which seems like God is with us uh, as we do that, uh, as many as God would lead and uh, as many as possible to reach our city. So we want to start new churches. And, and that's what we want to do. But the question we need to ask before we continue doing that? Is it, is it even a good idea? Meaning, is it a biblical idea? Can we get this idea from the Bible? Because if the Bible isn't for starting new churches, then we shouldn't be for starting new churches either. But I think 
God's Word does communicate there are good reasons to start new church, churches. So three New Testament reasons for new churches. I'd love for you to write a bunch of things down this morning, starting with these. First, ongoing faithfulness to Jesus' commands. What were Jesus' last words to his disciples? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So his command to his disciples, go and be witnesses, go and baptize, go and teach. And as people did that, as that happened and continues to happen, those who receive and believe begin to gather together and new churches are started. Number two, New Testament reasons for new churches, the spreading out of believers. In Acts chapter 6, it introduces us to a powerful servant of the infant church, a man named Stephen. And Stephen took seriously the commands of Jesus. And so he went to witness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel. And instead of people receiving his message, they seized him and killed him. And the verses that followed... Read like this, Acts 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So the church scatters because of this persecution. People flee Jerusalem. But as they fled, they told the story of Jesus. They preached the gospel, and people received and believed. So whenever you have believers spreading out... You should have new churches starting. So in a a city like Houston, we have people coming from all over, even to this campus, from all over northwest Houston. Some from Tomball, some from down in Bridgeland, some from Magnolia, some from the Woodlands. And as our church spreads out, churches should also spread out. Number three, New Testament reasons for new churches, a specific and divine call. There are occasions when God will... Give specific directions to his general commands of making disciples. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is why we know about the Apostle Paul, because this moment happened. And he left this moment. You can see the map behind me. The stars are a little hard to see, but all these stars represented places where he went with his friends to be witnesses of Jesus, to baptize people, and to teach people to obey the commands of Jesus. And in all of these places, churches were started because of this specific divine call. I want to show you one of those stars and the story behind one of them in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, we see some of the elements necessary to start a new church. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are some of the elements necessary to start a new church. And I would love for you to pull out your Bible and write some things down, whether on paper or on your phone, because we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And I would love for you to be able to go back and look at it. First, there needs to be a calling. There needs to be a calling. Acts 16, verse 6. 
And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now we do not know the means which the Holy Spirit used to deliver this message to Paul. It could have been through prayer, could have been through circumstances, it could have been someone with the New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy. It's unclear. But they're not allowed to go into these places. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought up to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is an instance of specific and divine calling. Now notice there were two no's before a yes came and the calling was clarified. There was a no to the regions of Phrygia and Galatia. It even used the strong wording forbidden, that they were forbidden from preaching the gospel in these areas. And there was a no to the cities of Bithynia. If your heart is to do the will of God, you will have to learn to take no for an answer. Before you were even one year old, you learned and already knew how to refuse a no from your parents. We have an 11-month-old daughter, Willa, and all of Willa's basic needs are met. She has food, she has clothing, she has water, she has shelter. But then on some specific things, she's learned that she wants them and we have to tell her no. Like, for example, she already knows the difference between a pink plastic phone and a real iPhone. She knows the difference. You hand her the toy one, she just immediately drops it. She doesn't even get mad about it. She just holds her arm out and drops it. And then she'll reach for your phone and you, you tell her no. Uh, she doesn't cry. Uh, she just, uh, you know that game Operation? You remember playing it when you touch the sides of the thing? Uh, she does that. Ah! No, no, Willa, you can't have that. Ah! It's like she inserts her groan into your hip, and then it works its way to your back. Ah! Up your spine. Ah! And your brainstem, and then lodges itself. Right here, I need you to pray for Amanda and I. (laughs) All day long. Because she has learned not to take no for an answer. Our, Our bigger kids do the same thing, but they just do it a little bit more sophisticated. When you tell them no, uh, they bring, uh, well, first they bring evidence of why no is the wrong answer and yes is the right answer. So they'll come downstairs, they'll ask for something, we'll say for some very wise reason, of course, and not just because we don't want to do it at that moment, some good parenting reason for no, and then they unfold a 15-reasoned paper for why that was a bad decision on our part. Like they had plotted it ahead of time. They had said, mom and dad are probably going to say no. So let's write down 15 reasons why, so we can just be ready. And it just rolls off their tongue. All the evidence for why we should say yes instead of saying no. Or they will try to pressure us by telling us, well, everyone else gets to. 
We want a phone. We want our own this, our own that. We need to do this. I want to go see this. And we say, no. And they say, well, such and such got to do it. And everybody in my class does it. Somehow Jackson knows what everybody at his school does. It's amazing. Everybody at his school is like, he's taking a survey. People walking in in the morning, little kindergartners there. Hey, do you get to do this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone gets to do it. And what I tell them, well, unfortunately, you were born into the wrong family because I don't care. <laughs> everyone else... And, uh, and then if, if those two things don't work, then they just try good old-fashioned persistence. They'll come and ask, no, five minutes later, they'll ask again and again and again and again and again. I see all of those things in my interaction with God when I want something. I mean, that's what most of our prayer is. Topic sentence, God, I want, fill in the blank. The next paragraph is what? all of the reasons, all of the evidence to support your case for wanting that topic sentence. God, I really want this, and here are the 15 reasons why you should give it to me and why I deserve it and why it would be a good thing. And that's what our prayer becomes. One request and a lot of reasoning why. And if we feel it slipping away from us, what do we do? Well, I don't understand why you gave it to that person. I don't understand why they get to do it. I don't understand why you said yes to them and them and them and them. It seems like everyone else you say yes to, and you always say no to me. And persistence, you may be thinking, well, hey, we got you there because Jesus told us to be persistent in prayer. He's the one who told us a parable about the widow, how she got what she wanted from the judge because she just went and knocked, 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 and the judge said, I'm not even a good man, but I'm going to give you what you want just so you will leave me alone. Jesus connected that to prayer. So persistence in prayer is a good thing. It's true. Sometimes. Sometimes. If you're praying for somebody that you care about who is a prodigal and they're far from God right now, persist in prayer. Persist, persist, persist. But there are other times that our persistence is just our way of refusing a no from God. Well, how do I know the difference If your persistence leads to peace, keep persisting. So if in praying and praying and praying and praying, you feel strengthened in your soul, you feel resolved, you feel built up, you feel like there's nothing impossible for God and he can do this thing that I'm asking, then by all means, keep persisting. But if your persistence steals your peace, if it causes anxiety in you or it causes bitterness in you. If your persistence in prayer for that thing that you want is just making you more and more and more bitter at God, you may be resisting a no. But why would God not want to give us good things? I mean, Paul wants to go into these regions and preach the gospel. He doesn't want to go in and set up a self centered business for the sole purpose of generating pocket uh, money in his own pockets for his own income. He wants to go and preach the gospel. Why would God say no to these regions and, and only say yes to Philippi? Because not every yes is equal. Not every yes is equal. Only God knows why a yes to The region of Macedonia was a better yes than the regions of Bithynia and Phrygia and Galatia, but it was. So a little introspection. 
for us this morning. Is there any part of you that is currently resisting a no from God? Because if so, you may just be delaying a greater yes. We always think when God says no to us, he's holding out on us just because he can. He has all the power. We have none of it. We have no leverage in the relationship. So when he says no to me, it may be that he's holding a greater yes. So he may be holding out on you. He's just holding out for something better. In the years before we started Bayou City, Amanda and I knew that we wanted to lead a church one day and pastor a church, but you, know, you kind of have a choice at that moment. You can start a new church or you can go to a church that already exists, and there are a lot of pros and cons to both. One of the pros to going to an existing church is that it already exists, uh, which is helpful. And I found online a list of churches in Houston that didn't have pastors, and so occasionally I would get online and I would look at that list. Like, you've heard of First Baptist Church, you've heard of Second Baptist Church, but have you heard of Third Baptist Church? Because Third Baptist Church at that time did not have a pastor. And I would say to God, listen, I will be a bronze medalist pastor in this city. I will be the third best pastor here. I don't mind. I will go to Third Baptist Church. And there was a long list, and I would pray about them. Some of them I had heard of, and some of them I had not heard of. Some of them were parts of town I had been in. Some were in parts of town I hadn't been in. But I would pull that list out, and sometimes I would say to God, listen, I, let me have one of these churches. I will do it for free. I'll keep my job. I'll do it in my spare time. I really won't want to do it. It's a good thing. Each time it was no, 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 no. Why? Because God is mean? No, because this is where I wanted to be standing. This is the church that I wanted to be a part of. These are the people who I wanted to be in a family with. So God said no, not because he's just a God who likes to say no, but because there was a greater yes for me. I promise you that yes from God that you want will come after some no's that you do not want. It's the way that God clarifies his will and his calling in our lives. And you can't start a church without calling. Number two, necessary element for starting a church, resourcefulness. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So Paul and his friends, Silas, Timothy and Luke, they were resourceful. First, they were resourceful because they knew their call was to Macedonia, but there was no word about Philippi. The dream said, come over to Macedonia, which is like saying, come over to Texas to preach the gospel. So then they used strategy. They thought strategically. So where should we go inside of Macedonia? Well, let's go to one of the leading cities, Timothy. That's what it says in verse 12. It was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. They were strategic. They were also resourceful in their patience. They didn't just jump in right away. It says they arrived, but in verse 12, we remained in this city some days. They were resourceful in finding the right people to start with. We see in the book of Acts that Paul had a process. When he goes around that map and would go into each of those cities, he would first go to the Jewish synagogue. Now, why would we go to the Jewish synagogue? Well, first, he was Jewish, so there was a natural affinity there. He would also go to the Jewish synagogue because Jesus was Jewish. 
He would go to the Jewish synagogue because they were familiar with the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament. And inside the Old Testament, there are prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So it was a natural starting point for his message. So this is where he would go. And when they didn't receive him, or if they didn't receive him, then he would move on to the Gentiles. So when he gets to Philippi, there is no synagogue to go to. But he heard somehow in those days when he was being patient and waiting that there was a group of people who believed in the God of Israel, mostly women, who gathered by the river to pray one day a week. And that's where they go. He was resourceful. You have to be resourceful when you start a church uh, primarily because you don't have any resources. Number three, necessary items, elements in starting a church. You have to proclaim Jesus. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Thyatira was known as an industry leader in purple dyed garments. Purple was a luxury item. It was a sign of royalty. So there may be an implication here in the pages of scripture that Lydia was very, very successful. And it says that she was a worshiper of God. Lydia is what is known now as a God-fearer. Uh, this was a Gentile person who had come to faith in the God of Israel, but did not fully convert to Judaism. And it says in Acts that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. A church that is not built on the proclamation of Jesus is nothing more than a low-class country club. Just a relational gathering that lacks amenities. Giving witness to the person and power of Jesus is the very lifeblood of any church. And when that proclamation goes, decay and death come knocking on the door. Proclaiming Jesus is a necessary element in starting a church. Number four, hospitality. Verse 15, and after she was baptized... And her whole household as well. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The kingdom of Jesus expands via invitations. It's one of the first things that we see Jesus doing. He invites people to follow him. A church grows by invitations. Which leads us to an important question. We're talking about new churches. Is who is the church for? Who is the primary customer uh, of the church? Is it for believers? Is it for non-believers? Is it for the purpose of turning non-believers into believers? Well, I like to think of it like what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, with these words, Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up the mountain, sat down, which was a sign that he was getting ready to say uh, something authoritative. He was getting ready to teach. He sat down, and it says his disciples came to him. So the picture is Jesus sees the crowds, so he goes up the mountain and takes a posture of teaching, and his disciples come around. So everything that follows after that was aimed at the disciples. All that stuff you're familiar with. The Beatitudes, aimed at disciples. Uh, the don't worry, because God closed the flowers of the field, and the birds of the air uh, have nests. Uh, that was for disciples. And how to give was for disciples. And how to pray was for the disciples. And the Lord's Prayer was for the disciples. Because Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, Sat down, his disciples came around him. But then it ends in chapter 7 with these words. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So he was teaching the disciples, but the crowds were around, which I think is the perfect posture for a church. The church is for believers. So when we come together, we sing, 
like believers, and we pray like believers, and we open the Word of God like believers. But we need to be hospitable and create an environment where those who do not believe can come and gather around and see in so they can get uh, a close-up view of the way that we love one another, the way that we treat one another, the way that we forgive one another, bear with one another, the way we carry each other's burdens. They can see the authenticity in the way that we sing, the way that we pray, the way we read the scripture. They can see in us the humility of we're not better than anybody else. We're just people who heard the truth a little bit faster than other people. And by peering in, they might be convinced to join in. So hospitality is very important in the church. It'd be easy for us to just come and huddle up and only care about one another in a way that puts off those who are not in that circle. But what we see in Jesus is we're going to handle our business here as disciples and teachers. But hey, come around and look. That's how most of us got here. We were invited to come and peer in. That's how most of you came to faith. You were able to look into somebody's life. You are able to see the way that we treat one another. If you're not a believer today, I would just ask you, hopefully by our love, you would be convinced to join. Hopefully by our authenticity, it might be enough to convince you that Jesus' witness is authentic and worth giving your life to. That's why hospitality matters a great deal. Number five, Spiritual opposition. It's a necessary element in starting a church. Verse 16, And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So it says the girl had a spirit of divination. Now remember Luke is writing the book of Acts to a friend named Theophilus. And he's not writing in English. He's writing in Greek. So when we read spirit of divination, the Greek literally speaks of a python spirit. The python was the symbol of the famous Delphic oracle and represented the god Apollo who was believed to render predictions of future events. Anyone who was seen to possess the gift of foretelling the future was described as being led by the python. The invisible enemies of God hate when new churches are started because that church can become a stronghold for the advancement of Jesus' kingdom and it becomes a launching pad for light and a storehouse for the salt of the earth. So when you start a new church, there will be spiritual opposition. Number six, there will be suffering. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. When God is doing a great work, there is a saint somewhere paying a great price. Wherever God is doing a great work, there is a saint somewhere paying a great price. 
You've heard me say before, but it's the tip of the arrow that absorbs the biggest blow. The great thing about a church is it presents an incredible amount of leadership opportunities. You can lead a volunteer team. You can lead a community group. You can lead a Bible study. You can lead a service project. You can lead, 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 lead. Our church is filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of leaders. And those leaders are the ones absorbing the biggest blow. So if you've been blessed by a Bible study that you've attended, it's because the one leading it crashed through a wall for you, paid a price for you that you didn't know, you didn't see. That's why leaders oftentimes feel dull. They feel bent up and beat up. That's why it's important as a church that we all share the responsibility. That when we see somebody doing all the work, we would say, hey, this time, let me lead. Let me teach. Let me host. Let me volunteer. Let me be the one. Because wherever God is doing a great work, there is saint, a saint somewhere paying a great price. What God was doing in Philippi was beautiful and powerful. But Paul and Silas paid the price. Suffering and church starting go hand in hand because kingdom work is hard work. Number seven, necessary element in starting a church, supernatural intervention. Verse 25, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and with fear and trembling fell down before Paul and Silas. So we see something similar happen two other instances in Acts. Those original apostles were arrested and miraculously released. Peter was arrested and then led out of prison by an angel. And here, Paul and Silas are taking their turn. Supernatural intervention. When you start a church, you get a front row seat to that kind of supernatural work of God. There's lots of stories I could share, but I'll just share, I think, maybe the very first one. It was a month before our first service, so August 2011, and was on the phone with one of our staff members who was volunteer at that time, of course. We all had regular jobs, and we had to make a $5,000 decision for the month of September. So we needed to pay for something in the month of September. It was going to be $5,000, and we were deciding should we do it or not do it, but it, the train had already kind of left the station, and you know those moments where it's like, well, it's kind of too late for this time, but $5,000 was a lot of money because uh, we had $0, so $5,000 is a lot of money. And so the deal we made was, well, we feel like we have to do this for the month of September, but, you know, there are 50 of us trying to lift this thing up off the ground, and if, you know, 55 people show up that first Sunday, $5,000 is going to, this is going to be bad. Uh, we're not going to be able to afford that, but if a lot of people show up, then maybe it will be worth it, so we'll do it for the month of September, and then we'll just evaluate as we go along, so that was the decision we made, so we hang up the phone. Five minutes later, somebody walks into my office. No, not, not a church office. I had a regular job walks into my office, says, I was praying this morning and I felt like God told me to give you this and they handed me a check for $5,000. See, when you start a church, you get a front row seat to 
supernatural intervention, which is what all of our souls want to see. But you only see that kind of thing from the front row. A lot of us have been sitting on the metaphorical back row because the price of admission is a lot cheaper there. It doesn't cost you anything to sit on the metaphorical back row just a few hours on a Sunday morning. But it's hard to see all that God is doing. The price is high for front row seats. It's going to cost you something. There will be some suffering that's attached to it. But the price is not more than the joy that your soul will have from a front row view. It's a great thing about the church of Jesus Christ. In his theater, there are front row seats for everybody. If you want to see God's work up close, there's a ticket for you. And finally, number eight, the necessary element in pro, uh, starting a church, we proclaim Jesus again. Verse 30, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You know, the thing I wonder about when I read this story is why they didn't escape. When the apostles were freed earlier in Acts, they escaped. And they showed back up for their trial on their own free will, which is pretty cool. But they escaped prison. When Peter was arrested and then miraculously released by the angel, he escaped. But Paul and Silas could escape. The earthquake came, opened up their cell doors, freed them from the chains around their hands and their feet, but they stayed there. How did they know to stay? Something good happened because they stayed. How did they know to stay? Well, it says what they were doing before the earthquake. They were singing and praying. And I think in the singing and praying, they were in tune with God. So when they were released, they knew to stay. Because they knew to stay, they made a good decision. And it was, well, it was eternal life for that jailer. That's the most powerful uh, witness there can be when your faithfulness collides with someone else's desperate need. This jailer, he was in trouble. He had one job, to keep those prisoners in their cells. And he wakes up, sees the doors open, and he goes to kill himself because he thinks, I would rather die by my own hand than to die at the hand of the Roman Empire. But Paul yells out, no, 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 we're, we're all here. Paul and Silas were faithful, and their faithfulness collided with that man's desperate need. And it was as powerful of a witness to Jesus as there could possibly be. But they knew to stay. You know, a lot of us, we're, we're waiting, we're waiting to start doing the right thing once we've been freed from our chains. Once we've gotten the thing that we really want from God, then we're going to start doing the right things. I'm going to go all in with you 
God, you know, this faith stuff, I'm going to start taking it seriously. I want a front row seat. I know that's what you want from me, but I really need you to do this thing for me first. When you deliver on this, then I'm going to be all in. When you free me from the situation I'm in, when you deliver that new job to me, whenever you rearrange my family, whenever you move us from this place to that place, when all that stuff that I've been asking you for, when that happens, then it's going to free me up to be faithful. But the decisions that you make once you receive what you want from God are determined in the way that you acted with God while you were still in need. How you act in your chains will determine how you act when you don't have chains on anymore. So if you're asking something from God, don't wait to be faithful until you have that thing in your hands. Because if you can't be faithful now while you're waiting, you won't be faithful then when you have it. They stayed in their place and they proclaimed Jesus. So I'm guessing most of us are church people and the way I define church people, if you've come to church for more than a couple of months, then uh, you're a church person and a church person knows that, uh, well, knows that Sunday mornings, you just know what to expect. So if somebody invited you to their church and, and their church was 30 minutes away, you'd probably consider going if you're a church person because you know what to expect. You know that it's 30 minute drive and then church is going to be an hour and a 15 minute experience or depending on who, who's preaching, you know, maybe a little bit longer than that. And, and so you kind of know how everything works. And so you got an hour and a half church experience, then you're going to go to lunch, and then you got a 30 minute drive back. So most of your Sunday morning is eaten up which is a big deal because you get Saturday to do all of your checklist. And then Sunday is that whew, only to gear back up for Monday. So when you invite somebody who doesn't go to church, uh, 30 minute drive, they're like, oh, that's a big, that's a big commitment. And what we found is when we had just one dot at the corner of I-10 in the Beltway and we would invite people from Cyprus to come to our church, they would be like, man, that sounds so great. But that's a long drive for somebody who's not a church person. But then when we put a dot just around the corner from people, and it was a five-minute drive, those invitations that they had said, no, I don't think so, uh, they started saying, yeah, that would be great. In fact, how many of you, just by show of hands, were with us at our location when we just had one dot. Would you just raise your hand? When we just were one dot, you know, so just a 40 of us in a room of 600. So most of you are here. Most of you are here because some people said, you know what? Let's follow Jesus. Because you and I, we were far from God. We weren't just across town from God. We were far off from God. And there was no amount of gas money that could get us from where we were to where he was. We were powerless to do it. Couldn't be a good enough person. Couldn't string enough good days together to try to work our way into his zip code. Impossible. But Jesus said, you know what? I will go to them. I'll move the dot to them. And he was born on earth, son of God, eternal son of God, with God when he created the world. An agent of creation himself, born of a virgin, anointed by God for powerful ministry, preached the way of righteousness and the way of the kingdom, lived a sinless life, sacrificed that sinless life 
on the cross for the forgiveness of my sin and your sin, was raised three days later, appeared to many witnesses, ascended up into heaven and one day will return. And until he returns, prayerfully what he's going to find is one small church in Houston trying to put as many dots as possible on the map. Let's pray. Jesus said that he knows his sheep by name and his sheep know his voice. So two things that you can be confident of today is that Jesus knows who you are and that if he speaks to you, you can hear him. So just in a moment of prayer, just ask, God, is, is Jesus, is there anything that you're saying to me today, a specific way to apply what you've spoken in the scripture? Is there anything specific you want to say to me today? God, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name.